32 guys in the world kicked a ball for a living. At the peak of my career, I was the top 10 guys on the planet that did what I did. I felt like God kept asking me this question. Was I going to kick the ball for his glory or for my glory? That's an incredible lead-in to our guest today. Todd Peterson is on the broadcast. Todd, first of all, just thanks for coming on. We so appreciate your time. My joy and honor. I'm delighted to join you. For those of you that might not know the name, Todd Peterson started out as a college player. We're going to hear a little bit about these stories, but he played his professional career with the New York Giants beginning in 93, and he played for the Patriots, for the Cardinals, Seahawks, Kansas City Chiefs. You got to feel pretty good about that. (laughs) 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 The Pittsburgh Steelers, with no comment, the San Francisco 49ers, (laughs) and the Falcons ending his career in 2005. So our mutual friend Tommy Lee put us together. And again, we're just delighted to have you on the broadcast. Well, such an honor. And I think of my NFL career really being kind of in quarters and A lot of it, almost half of it, was out in Seattle and then had a couple good stints with the 49ers and the Chiefs and then a swan song. Kind of got to retire with my hometown Falcons. So it was a privilege. I never expected to play 13 years and really a joy. And it gave me quite an interesting platform for life beyond the game. You know, the pressure of being the field goal kicker has got to be, uh, you know, when I watch pro ball. I'm like, that is the highest pressure cooker for a player who's not in the game, you know, staying warm and working out and getting hit and rolling around. And then you got to go out and you have one chance to either be a world famous or a world failure. I mean, gosh, the pressure is so mental. It is, you know, I realized because of my faith over time that God's got a plan for my life. And if I work hard and like Colossians three says, work heartily and mightily as if unto him. And, and then think about the scripture there, you know, as well, that talks about not trying to please man, but please God, that ultimately the Lord's plan is going to play out for my life. And if he wants me to play 13 years or two years, make hundreds of kicks or miss a kick at the end of the day, he's sovereign over my life. And My job was really to keep my eyes set on him and to realize he was bigger than my circumstances and, in fact, would use my circumstances to advance the gospel. That's what Philippians 1 says, that that when Paul's sitting there in that dungeon with rats crawling around and chained to a wall and it's dark and damp and he's hungry and he's been beaten, he Mm -hmm. says, I tell you, my brothers, my circumstances will turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. And so I ended up realizing and, and I wasn't the only guy. I had peers and contemporaries who felt this way, too, as believers, that we were really high-paid missionaries. God had given wow. us a very unique mission field to work in, and it just happened to come along with significant financial blessing. Well, we want to get to some of this in more detail. It reminds me, we lived for many years in the Washington, D.C. area and fell in love with our military and some of these high-ranking guys would say the exact same thing. We just happen to be missionaries that are paid by the government. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, well, let's start, you know, as an NFL kicker, you're drafted by the Giants from University of Georgia, Go Dogs, and you got involved with, let me go back, I'm sorry, let me just go back to the beginning. You're on the field, and you're not a believer in college, correct? I came to faith the latter part of college, so. Tell us about that. You know, I grew up in a great home, not a home where a personal relationship with Jesus was, you know, I wasn't discipled to understand that by my parents, but I grew up in the church. 
My parents came to faith later in life. I had a girlfriend for a number of years, high school, early college. She came from a really strong Christian family. And so the combination of her influence in my life and then an experience in kind of a weekend renewal type experience um, called the Walk to Emmaus really kind of rocked my world. And the combination of all that stuff with sports ministry on my college team, Athletes in Action specifically, is what kind of opened my eyes to the fact that Jesus wanted a personal relationship with me, that God had created a way for me to understand who He is, His love for me, His plan for my life through His Son, Jesus Christ, who could be my Savior if I would trust Him with my life. And so that happened, and it was a, you know, scales fall from my eyes experience, and all of a sudden I saw the world different, and things I worried about before Christ. I didn't worry about after Christ. And like Romans 5 says, I had peace with God, you know, as a result of that. I was justified by faith and had peace with God through Jesus. And and I'd never had peace before. I'd always kind of been a worry ward and um, insecure. And, and even though I'd performed in a sense in the world, was second in my class of 400 kids out of high school and got into every school I applied to. And went to the United States Naval Academy out of high school, I just was not peaceful. I was not full of peace or joy. I was worried and jockeying for position, and everything changed when I trusted Jesus. So many questions based on what you just said, but just for our listeners, you were a Naval Academy grad? I'm not a grad. I So I was recruited by all okay. three academies, Air Force, West Point, and Annapolis, and I actually went to the Naval Academy out of high school and then okay. transferred back to Annapolis to University of Georgia to play my last couple of years. For our listeners, um, to be accepted in any academy is incredibly impressive. Just from an academic and rigor standpoint, it's not just your GPA, but kudos for that. Let me ask sort of a, your, your comment has got me going 18 different ways than what I wanted to ask you. How did you get in the Word so quickly? Because you're quoting verses, and this is a little bit different than the average person that comes to Christ and ambles their way through young life or, you know, whatever. Somebody's got you in the Word. Yeah, I'm I'm a byproduct of sports ministry in a lot of ways. I mean, I had a chaplain early in my NFL career who poured himself into me and taught me God's wow. Word, and it changed my life. And what Scripture says is when we look intently into the Word, it changes us, and Romans 12 says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. And and I needed transformation. I needed my mind to work different than it had worked before Jesus. And, you know, it needed an upheaval. And God is faithful. That's what we know as a result of the scripture. And so it's just become my life. I love God's word. We spend a lot of our time as a married couple and as a family ensuring that the peoples of the earth have God's word in their language. Let, let, let me interrupt. As a college kid, you come to Christ. <laughs> are you in the word right then? Someone dragging you to a Bible study and going, hey, Todd, you need to sit down and let's talk about this together and read it together? Some, not the way I okay. am today or even the way I was you know, deeper into my NFL career, but some. I mean, I, I got saved because there's a scripture that changed my life. So God's word changed my life. It literally saved me. And yes, the gospel in concept and essence is what I embraced and offered me salvation in Christ. But the verse in 1 Corinthians 1, 25, that says the folly of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 
is what caused me to surrender my life to Jesus. Interesting. You know, that, that'd be a fascinating question to ask people. What was the verse? You know, <laughs> we think of John three sixteen, obviously, but that's, a, I don't think I've ever heard anyone refer to first Corinthians one twenty five. That's amazing. Well, I want to hear a little bit of the story of your wife. Cause in the video we watched about you, it's very touching how the two of you started kind of growing together and post NFL career, by the way, what's the average uh, player's career in the NFL? What, two to three years? Yeah, it's about three and a half years. Yeah. So, so you really broke the mold there. I did. I was very fortunate, no doubt. Very grateful. So that speaks highly not only to you as an athlete, but just you know the way God's using you in this whole thing. So, but share with our listeners, our friends, talk about you and your wife and your marriage and how things changed as you started to grow in the Word and in Christ. Yeah, I mean, there's the saying, you know, behind every great man's a better woman. And that is that's very true for me. She is an amazing, godly woman. There's a proverb that says a woman of grace is rightly honored. And I see my wife honored regularly because she's a gracious woman. She's godly. She's wise. She's beautiful in every sense of the word. She's fun. She's adventurous. She's an amazing wife and mom. And And we met at Georgia. We fell in love over the span of a couple of years. We were both banking and finance majors, accepted to law school. And and that's what we thought we were going to do is go to law school and kind of grind it out and eat beanie weenies for a few years and then (laughs) hopefully make partner and have a great life. And God saved us from that in in a sense, I would say, and and maybe even, you know, saved us from a real small life because that was kind of our dream. Yeah, we would have walked with God, but that was our dream. And and yet what the Lord had planned for us was so much greater. And, you know, the scripture says the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller, the world of the generous larger and larger. And what we have found as a married couple now, almost 30 years, is as we give our life away as a couple and individually our, our lives away, our world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And And this whole life that God has called us to really is a great adventure, like Stephen Curtis Chapman's song says. And so we've been married now almost 30 years. Um, We have two children going on 25, a daughter and 23, a son. Susan runs a couple businesses we own. We have partners in each of those businesses. I'm not very operationally involved. She's CEO of both of them. We're, We're in the manufacturing business with uh, tableware, dishware, giftware, and linens, things like that, mm. all, all kitchen-type stuff, entertainment. And she's awesome, and she really is the best part of me. She's grounding for me. She's a level set for me. She is just a virtuous woman, like the proverb says. And so I'm grateful. I'm a very fortunate man. Now, from a guy that is uh, with the Giants, with the Falcons, all the things you're involved with all over this career, Pro Athletes, Young Life Foundation, Chairman Emeritus of the Seed Company, which, by the way, my good friend Larry Jones, you probably know Dr. Jones, was involved with Seed Company for many years. Also, you're on the boards of The Gathering and the Passion Conferences, Passion City Church, and we'll, we'll get to talking about the Illuminations Translations Project you're doing. But your wife walking with you on, is she good with all these moves during the NFL and raising two kids in tow? We also want to hear a little bit about your epic failure, as you call it, early on. But she's cool with all this, Todd. She's like, okay, we're going to move. We're going to go from you know the Giants. We're going to go out of New England. We're, you know, 
How, how does a wife navigate? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, again, like I said, I mean, that that list of teams a little bit misleading. I mean, really, my career was dramatically defined by four teams okay. over, you know, 11, 11 years. And a few of those teams were like cups of coffee. But, you know, in a, in a bio, everybody... You know, everybody wants all the info in a bio, right? I well, mean, I mean, you start out with one of 35 in the in the world. So, you know, it's an acknowledgement, you know, of how God gave you opportunity, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. And and we weren't married for the first couple of years okay. and, the, and the Giants and the Cardinals. So she didn't really experience the Giants, Patriots, Cardinals, cups of coffee. Got it. Her tolerance for all this was developed by Seattle through Atlanta. And, you know, I think she, it's an equal yoking, right? I mean, she understood what God had called me to. And because we were married, we were called to that together. And there's a lot of fun in all of that and a lot of adventure in all of that and a lot of blessing, obviously, in all of that. But there was challenge too. I mean, and, you know, when I got hurt in Seattle and and had to sit out part of a year and then move to Kansas City, you know, she did do exactly what you said. She had to navigate how in the heck do we get out of a house in Seattle? Where in the world are we going to live? Oh, by the way, I guess I'm going to go to Atlanta for a little while before we really even know where we're going to go. And then before you know it, I'm headed to Kansas City and she's got to wait and see how that's going to pan out and get kids taken care of and find a place. And, and it's, you know, I think the world, the public looks at the pro athlete world and pro sports probably more kind of at a meta level and there's a lot of glitz and glamour and lifestyles of the rich and famous but the reality is it's not all glitz and glamour it's tough there can be some upheaval to it and so she had to trust the lord and she had to identify and build good community and and family structure for us and i had to be helpful in that but you know, I was gone most of the time. I mean, you get up at 6 a.m. and you get home at 6 p.m. and I'm all consumed by pro football. And that's just reality. And it's and it's different than maybe other industries where, you know, you can be at work and you can take a phone call from your wife. Well, you don't take a phone call from your wife when you're out at practice. They frown on that, right? Yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> Let, let's talk about, um, and I guess all of us have sort of this epic failure and then opportunity to rebound in the character arc world. You know, there's insurmountable thing we have to pass through. The video clip that we uh, used earlier, you said your college career was a disaster. For folks that (laughs) might not know Todd Peterson's story, tell them a little bit about that. The first chunk of it was defined by missing a massive kick. You know, I'd transferred from Annapolis, come back to Georgia, won the job on the heels of Georgia having enormously successful kickers. Georgia, you know, every university wants to kind of be touted as, you know, something you, right? I mean, Penn State was linebacker you, you know, Miami was quarterback you. Um, Georgia would have historically probably been running back you and, and interestingly enough, kicker you. And kind of every guy who'd kicked at Georgia before me had, had gone on to play in the NFL. And And so I was kind of on, you know, on a um, continuum of like, wow, this is an honor and this is, you know, the way we do it here. And I missed a massive kick when we were playing at Alabama at night. We were the number one offense in the SEC. They were the number one defense. We were both ranked in the 
top five, I think, in the nation in offense and defense, respectively. Maybe even one of us was number one. They may have been the number one D in the nation. And we had a 0-0 game, you know, deep into the third quarter, and I missed a chip shot field goal that probably would have been the three points that would have won the game. I mean, it's 0-0 deep in the third. Nobody's scoring. Nobody's moving the ball. They're shutting us down. Defenses win games. And it was a very, very humbling or maybe even I'd say humiliating thing because I realized, one, that my identity was tied up in how I performed. And that's a real, real, real blow to your ego when sure. you are identifying yourself by how you perform and you and you want to perform well. And then all of a sudden you fail. All of a sudden you think you, you don't think very highly of yourself. That was why I would have said my career to that point was not good. I mean, mediocre at, at best, average at best. Coming out of that, the Lord was gracious, and he restored my credibility as a player. I ended up earning the job back through a set of circumstances that was very, very evidence of the grace of God. The guy who was in front of me got mono. They tried to put another guy in front of me, and he missed a kick, and they had no choice but to come back to me. And then God blessed me and favored me, and I had a great run my senior year, which is ultimately why I even got on the NFL radar. And And so the Lord knew, right? I mean, he knew that I needed to be humbled, obviously. Um, He knew that he could trust me with a second chance. He knew that his grace was going to be sufficient for my need. And he gave me vision for life and understanding that the platform that would come with that success was to be leveraged for his glory, not my own. A sidebar question, because a lot of parents have kids that are athletic we had uh, four children and two were very athletic. My uh, oldest, you know, she had opportunities, but she leaned more toward the academic and inside. And the second daughter was very athletic. And as a parent, you have these opportunities to push your kids, to encourage them, to fan the flame. I know you've been asked this a thousand times, but, you know, we had uh, opportunities for select soccer and travel teams. And then your whole life becomes taking this child Friday through Sunday, so you're never in church. The other kids are either in tow or displaced, or your marriage is, you know, going to have those separations when one parent goes. And and we've seen, uh, not to be indelicate, people sell their souls to their kids' athletic endeavors. On the one hand, there would be no Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, there would be no fill in the blank without that. So give a parent that advice, Todd, a little little counsel. What's the fulcrum where you push this child or encourage this child, you can do this, or you back off and say, we're not going to sell our souls to travel teams and special coaches. I mean, because you got to decide this, what, elementary school, if you're going to be serious about pro athletics? Yeah, I'm a pretty good, you know, I'm a pretty interesting, you know, case study in that, candidly. I mean, I didn't kick a football till I was 15. So my tack on that, usually when a parent asks me is, look, your kids either got it or they don't. And your job is to nurture them. When you read scripture, you train up your child on the way they should go, right? And they won't depart from it when they're old. And, And so that's a discipleship thing for sure. Put the word into them, teach them Jesus way, you know, help them to understand how to discern God's will in their life and all that, but also according to their aptitude and their 
and their proclivity and their their academic predisposition and all that. I mean, that's your job as a parent is to nurture them and to encourage them sure. according to how God has wired them. And, you know, if you don't have the humility as a parent to be willing to embrace the the realities of your child's life, then shame on you, in my opinion. I mean, if, if you think your kid's going to, you know, be, you know, Michael Jordan and your kid's, you know, in the lowest 10 per 10th percentile physical stature all the time, you're probably not being a very good parent. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you're not going to have a kid be a dominant NBA player if they're five, two, I mean, you know, and, and so my encouragement of parents is like, be reasonable and be realistic and have the humility to help your child embrace reality. And for me, I don't believe nor espouse that kids have to start doing these types of things in elementary school. I mean, I'm a living example. I kicked a football for the first time when I was 15 and went on to play 13 years in the NFL. So now I will say that, you know, work ethic is critical. And I will also say that stewardship of talent and investment of talent is a part of the puzzle, right? I mean, but at the end of the day, God's got a plan for your life. And you can be super talented and never play in the NFL. And you can have average talent, but a great work ethic and God's plan for your life can be to have great success on a, on a field. And so I just believe in the sovereignty of God. And, and I could have kicked a football when I was six and seven and eight and nine and 10, 11 and 12. And there are people out there whose kids yeah. are kicking footballs when they're yeah. that young but ultimately God's plan for your life is going to play out. And my, my advice is get in lockstep with God. We talked about every kid has a spark and the job of a parent is to fan the flame, you know, the, the your proclivity, your interest, the way God's wired them, et cetera. But where it becomes a conundrum for a lot of us with a lot of kids is the sacrifice and the toll it takes on the other children. And, and that's, you know, what we saw with the travel teams was, you know, great opportunity. And if the enthusiasm and the drive is there and you got, you know, we had some great coaches, I mean, phenomenal people that, you know, they weren't overbearing, they weren't sell your soul, but they were also, you know, kind of kick you when you needed it and, um, tremendous coaches, but that for, I call it the fulcrum, where do you decide, okay, you know, this kid's going to play and we're going to, every weekend guys, we're getting in the van and going to watch so-and-so play their games. And, that to me is the harder one. I mean, if I got one or two kids, it's one thing, but if I got four or five kids, I mean, that's a long discussion, perhaps another time. Let, let, let's go on with, with a little bit about. Yeah. What I, you, all I would say to that real yeah. quick, I mean, you asked me sure. that and I didn't answer it. All I would say is one, you know, as a parent, you got to pray and ask God for help. I mean, you got to ask for wisdom. When we lack wisdom seeking, we ask and he promises to give it generously. And so, He'll give it to you. He, he left us his spirit, the helper, for a reason, because he knows we need help. And the Lord will help you discern what is wise to do with each respective kid. And you treat each kid different on some level as it relates to their unique wiring. And I think one of the things we did, because both of our kids are super talented. We don't have four or five. I can't relate to that. We have a lot of friends who have four or five. And, and I think on some level, they have demonstrated the same approach as we took. Mm-hmm. Our kids, we were not going to let their activities in an unhealthy way dictate the pace of life for our family, 
craziness of, you know, life for our family. And so we did things like, hey, one sport in a season for each kid. We weren't going to do yeah. three and four sports in a season. We have we've known people who go from ballet to band oh. to sport to, yes. you know, something all in one afternoon. And you wonder yes. why your life is crazy. Yeah, we've watched the same thing, and our kids are all grown and gone, and a couple married, so it's a different chapter. But I watch these young parents and go, it's fun to watch how they navigate it and knowing I don't have to do that again. (laughs) Well, let's talk about some of the ministries you're involved with, because I was pretty blown away reading some of the things, these global influential. Let's talk, first of all, about the Illuminations Bible Project. So at some point, you and your bride say, hey, we we have to do something beyond the local church, and uh, that's in critical involvement. But this is big stuff, Todd. It is. It's super exciting. And what Illuminations is, is it's called a Collective Impact Alliance. So you can shorten that and just call it an alliance, but, but it's literally referred to and thought of kind of from a scientific or a fancy standpoint as a collective impact alliance, which really means that the members of the alliance are working together to create impact collectively that none of them could alone or, or wouldn't be able to so significantly alone. And, and what has happened as a result of, of our involvement and a number of other families is that kind of our collective influence philanthropically and as donors has really been helpful to the activities and the coordination of activities and the strategic planning for activities and work being in Bible translation across 11 leading Bible translation organizations. And prior to the alliance being formed, and it's about a decade old now, the Bible translation world was pretty fragmented. There were a lot of organizations doing good work, but there wasn't a lot of coordination. They had different systems different processes. And, and, you know, as recently as, you know, 20 years ago or so, they were talking about it being another 100, 150, 200 years before the last languages would be translated. And there's 7,000 plus languages on earth. When you look at Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Matthew 24, Matthew 28, God talking about the nations, God talking about everywhere, That's all those languages. That's the ethnos and every tribe, every nation, every people, every language is not 200 geopolitical countries. And so we just felt like it was unacceptable to us to think that there were people on earth, actual nations, tribes, peoples, languages without access to the gospel. We couldn't imagine a greater injustice. And so Susan and I, another couple in particular, Diana and Mark Green, Mark's family behind Hobby Lobby, the Greens, us, a number of other couples have just said over these last years, what can we do to be the gas in the tank and to use your phrase, fan the flame? What can we do to fan the flame of Bible translation? And you have these incredibly courageous leaders, like you mentioned, Larry Jones, a dear friend, an amazing godly man, PhD, you know, linguist who has been giving his life for decades to translating God's word for the peoples of the earth. And we want to come alongside them. And and I don't know how to translate the Bible, but I do know how to make money and give and influence other people. I want to hold his arms up the way that, you know, Aaron and her held Moses arms up. And, and so what can we do? And that, that's really the story of illuminations. God over the last few years through an annual gathering we do and a lot of monthly kind of quarterly strategic planning we do 
the 11 CEOs, a handful of us, um, you know, funders come together and we have seen God move mightily. And over the last eight, nine years, about $300 million has been given by a few hundred families to fund Bible translation through this alliance. I was looking at the Wycliffe Associate and they actually have, it's called the Wycliffe Global Alliance now and the number of languages. And of course, this data changes quite frequently, but it says uh, 3589 uh, at least some scripture is uh, translated. We have about 1,680 translation projects that need to start. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, about 1,600 without a single verse. That's correct. And then Larry told me, and this is, we've known them since 1984. And I think when we started, he said it was taking 20 years to translate. And now we're down to seven, or is there newer data than that? Yeah, they say the average New Testament's about seven. That's correct. And with the advent of and the innovation around artificial intelligence and some things like that, they're really fired up about what yeah. these next you know few years could mean for Bible translation. It is a fascinating project, and we've been big supporters of Wycliffe Associates and the Joneses and others like that, but that's a fun connection. And you're right, he is one of the most brilliant, godly guys I've ever met. And, and Linda as well. They are just, they both have earned PhDs and the way God's used them and the way they've approached life is, I go, what am I doing as a pastor? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just you're right, twiddling you're my right, thumbs. You're, you're no, I'm twiddling my thumbs and they're changing the world. So anyway. Uh, you're, well, you're, you're running in your lane, they're running in theirs. Exactly, exactly. Um, so obviously there was some change in, in you and Susan's heart when you said, okay, we want to get involved in a, greater way. And you're younger than me, but one of the most frequent conversations I have, Todd, with people in their 60s is what's next? And Cindy and I got involved with Generous Giving and Generous Living a long time ago. Love those guys. When I was at Moody, we ran with some people that were just incredibly generous. But I still find this kind of stall in purpose because you said you weren't identified as a you know field goal kicker, but you are. And he's, he's identified as a doctor. I'm identified as a pastor, whatever. And moving that identity to I'm in Christ, my job is not who I am. And at this magic number of whatever, when I retire, Hendrick said, you might retire from a career, but you never retire from ministry. And then later he said, retire to your gifting, which I thought was fascinating. But a lot of my peers are saying, I want to give back. And I go, there's no giving back. You need to have clarity and purpose, and you need to understand your gifting. You, know, you don't do something you've never done or can't do. So that's my prattle. Help us out. You and Susan made a very precise course change in both her business and what you're doing with the Illuminations. So help folks out. How do they navigate that, Todd? That's a great question. I mean, I had a really great experience. It wasn't fun at the time. It was pretty uh pretty humbling, humiliating, eye-opening, convicting when it happened. But early in my NFL career, one of the chaplains, ironically, for an NBA team out in the Northwest, the Portland Trailblazers, was real involved in sports ministry, and, and we had some friendship. And he asked me, you know, one day, who are you? And I answered him by saying my name. I said, well, I'm, I'm Todd Peterson. And and he said, no, you're not. That's your name. And, and he said, who are you? And I said, is that a trick question? I mean, I just answered your question. I told you my name. And he said, I know that's your name. That's not who you are. I said, well, 
I guess I'm the kicker for the Seahawks. And he said, <laughs> nope, nope, that's what you do. And I said, okay, trick question. I don't get it. And he said, well, John 1 says who you are as a child of God. Have that be your identity and everything else will fall into place. And, and wow. it helped me understand why scripture speaks to the value of a good name. And it helped me understand why scripture speaks to doing all you do with all your heart as if unto the Lord. And it changed the way I looked at life. And, and I think we've carried that through our lives, whether I was kicking a football for a living or we were running a business or we were sitting on ministry boards or we were investing in business deals or giving money, whatever it is, we operate from primary context of understanding that we are children of God, John 1, to those who believe and receive his name, he gives the right to become a child of God. We are reborn in Christ. We are a new creation. We have a different way of looking at the world. The old is gone. The new has come. It reframes the way we evaluate opportunities, etc. And it, to your point, gives you great purpose. I mean, it is a purpose setting and a purpose clarifying context for how you look at life. And then we filter everything through that, right? I mean, if it doesn't align with what we believe about who we are, who God is, God's plan for our life, then we're not going to do it, right? I mean, that doesn't make sense. I mean, we're all given a finite period of time to live on this earth. And, you know, we have time, talent, treasure, influence relationships, and I want to steward all of them well, you know, I love the verse in Luke 12 that talks about to whom much is given, much is expected. And I want to be found faithful before God for stewarding well and using well and managing well what he entrusted to me. And so I really agree with you. You know, there's a book that came out years ago called Halftime, and Bob Buford was a great leader and a great thinker. And at its core premise, I totally agree with what Bob was trying to get guys and and gals to understand and consider. But to your point, I'd like to get people to understand it before they have a halftime crisis. I mean, let's have purpose in our job, vocation, kingdom purpose in our vocation. In fact, let's understand with a good biblical theology of work that we can actually do a vocation that has nothing to do with vocational ministry and actually be doing ministry the whole time. And I think that was Dr. Hendrick's point. Like, ministry never ends, guys. You may change vocations. You may retire from a vocation, but ministry never ends. We are always going to be serving God. Jesus didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and laid his life down. And so that's our opportunity in this Christian life is to lay our life down so that other people are lifted up, whether we're doing a job we get paid for or we're serving as a volunteer in some capacity, we're giving generously, Whatever we're doing, we're doing it for the glory of God, and it's our privilege to serve. 100% love it, agree. You and I still have a lot of friends that they're not there, Todd, and they're facing, and most of these people are pretty well financially established. They've got college funds for their grandkids. They travel. they They might play golf a lot. They have ease to do what they want to do. But if you press them, what are you doing for the Lord? They go blank and they're good people. It's not like these are indolent, lazy, stingy people. These folks love God, but once that identity, you walked away from the NFL career, they walk away from a professional career where they were respected. A friend of mine 
who owns a business. And when he started talking about transition, I said, oh, you're going to be marginalized. He looked, he said, the first time the word transition came out, I was in the ditch. <laughs> he goes, they didn't want to talk to me anymore, even though I'd built this great business. And so much of our identity is back that chaplain, what I do, that's my identity. When I don't do that anymore, I get an opportunity to recreate it. But come on, you know, a lot of people I do, they're close to your friends. They don't know how to proceed. So how coaches, what, what would you tell these folks? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think a couple things, I mean, there's, there's a scripture that says that we never want to trade away what is eternal for what is temporal. And when I look at the scripture, there are only two things I see, and I've heard numerous people say this, and it's become a mantra for me. There's only two things I see that are going to last forever. And as an investor, I'm always looking for a return on investment. And we've had the privilege of investing in a lot of cool things and seeing significant returns, and that's exciting. Well, if Scripture tells me that there are only two things that are going to last forever, and God tells me to walk in a manner worthy of His call on my life, then I want to be invested in the things that are going to last. Because everything else is going to burn up to steal the phrase. And so when it says, don't trade away what is eternal for what is temporal, and when you read in Matthew 6, you don't want to lay up your treasure here on earth where moth's going to eat it, rust's going to destroy it. You want to lay it up in heaven. Then I want to be about the things that are going to last. And I want my purpose to be rooted in and aligned with and adjoined to the things that are going to last. And that's God's word and the souls of man. And everything I can do to bring intersection and collision, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, to those two things is where the sweet spot of my life is and the sweet spot of Susan's life is. And I would say for the guy out there that says, ah, you know, I'm just going to coast and I'm going to go play golf. And like Dr. Piper says, you know, toss nickels out the window of your Suburban, pick up seashells on the beach. I would say, you're going to miss out on the greatest opportunity we have on this earth. And that is to be a part of what God is doing. There's a reason that I said that the world of the stingy, the one who entrenches, retrenches, hunkers down, tries to be in self-preservation mode and withhold, the world of the stingy gets smaller. The world of the generous, larger and larger. And that's what God's inviting us to do is be a part of what he's doing to redeem the world. And, And it's a great adventure. I mean, I left the NFL and there were people numerous people who said, where in the heck do you go from here? I mean, yeah. you, you've experienced all that could be good in life. And if I had to believe that, my life would be so sad today. But the reality of my life today is that I've been out of the game now as long, longer than I played. I played right. 13 years. I've been retired now 15 going on 16 years. My life, our life, my wife and I would testify, our life is a million times bigger and a million times more fun and a million times more rewarding. And that's not hyperbole. We've been all over the world. We've met the most amazing people. We've been involved in the most incredible things. And it's 100% because we've given our life away. I would tell anyone, try it. God will not fail you. That is a great place to wrap our time. I could talk to you all afternoon. It's exciting to see how God uses you exponentially. And I I hate the cliche, you can't outgive God, because it's heard, obviously, can be misunderstood. But when we started increasing our giving over the years, and we never missed it, 
And as a friend of mine said, I can live as good on 80% as I can on 100 And then, of course, generous giving turns you upside down even further than that. But it's a <laughs> fascinating thing to see that God you know, meets your provisions. And I think the American hardwiring of the work ethic, saving is good, but the underbelly can sometimes be a fear of generosity, a fear of all the things you just said in, in our in our last minute here. Todd Peterson, it's been a delight to have you in the broadcast. In the show notes, you'll find more information about Todd. You'll find information. I really want to direct you to their website of Illuminations and see what they're doing. That might be something you want to be involved with and contribute to. Uh, this coalition of Bible translators has long been needed because we could both tell stories about sort of silo approach to Bible translation. And and there's still some ostensibly a reason for that. But at the end of the day, we want to get some of the scripture into all languages. And there's a great little video that you can walk Susan visiting a pretty remote village. So thanks for your time. Uh, God bless you and your endeavors and keep on pressing on. And we're all cheering from the sidelines, not the stadium, but the sidelines of what God's doing in your life. Thanks, Michael. A joy to be with you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.